In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. One of the difficulties with Paul's letter to the Colossians is that it has this condensed quality to it. Or, perhaps more correctly, because we are heirs of the Reformation tradition, and therefore so used to and familiar with the Paul of Galatians and Romans, which are written in response to very specific circumstances. Colossians, which reads like Ephesians, which is more of a general letter, allows us to see a different aspect of Paul's theology, which, because we are unfamiliar with it, because it's so unlike at times the Paul of Romans and Galatians, it can feel overwhelming. Take, for example, the cosmic Christology of verses 15 to 20 of the same chapter which we heard this morning. That's not the type of language you typically find in Paul, which doesn't mean that this letter was written by someone other than Paul, as some would argue, but that Paul was writing to a different context. He doesn't need to play the justification by faith card here in Colossians, as he does in Romans and Galatians and elsewhere, and so he doesn't. Instead, what we find is this incredible vista of some of the most stunningly glorious theology in the entire New Testament. Starting in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Deep breath. It's easy to get lost in that type of theological view to be overwhelmed by it. I mean, each one of those sentences, prepositional phrases could be meditated on and prayed about and pondered for forever. And so Paul seems to dial it back just a bit. He makes it more personal, and that's where our reading begins this morning. He says, but you and you, you who were once alienated, and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled, this is that same theme of reconciliation, reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you, notice that, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. He says to his Gentile audience that they were once cut off 
from God's plan. God's plan was to work through the children of Abraham. They were hostile. They were doing evil. But now, as part of Christ's reconciliation of all things to himself, Christ has reconciled them for a purpose. In order to present them before himself, holy, blameless, and above reproach. Notice that. Because Paul's going to sort of make a parallel to this in the next few verses. Christ reconciled the world, the Gentiles, to himself to present them before himself holy, blameless, and above reproach, if, he says, if they continue in the faith, stable and steadfast. Being reconciled to Christ isn't a one-time thing like an event, something that happens to us and then we can move on and forget about it. It's not just praying a prayer. It's not just signing some card or some membership covenant or something like that. Being reconciled to Christ is a lifelong process of becoming who we already are in Him. It's not a sprint. It's a marathon. But the race has already been won in Christ. So all we have to do is keep running. Oh, and by the way, the energy to run comes from the Holy Spirit, not from us. But that's a different sermon. It's after this that Paul then says something seemingly outrageous. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking, lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church. Notice the parallel. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of the whole church. What exactly does Paul think is lacking in the afflictions of Christ? Soteriologically, that is, in terms of salvation, nothing. Nothing Clearly, nothing. Then, what is missing? In first century Judaism, there was a belief in something known as the messianic sufferings, which is to say, a period of suffering that would precede the messianic age. And the Messiah would take that suffering on to himself for the good of his people. This is where our whole doctrine of justification sort of comes from. But consider this in light of verse 25. Of which I became a minister, this suffering, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. It seems as though Paul believes part of his ministry was to suffer for the sake of the church. That is, to let the enemy keep his arrows aimed at him 
so that the rest of the church could grow and thrive, so that His faithfulness in suffering could be a witness, so that His suffering might lead to good for other people. Of course, this is not something different than the suffering of Christ. It's just making that suffering present. And of course, this is all part of what Paul calls the mystery, hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to the saints, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. If Christ is in Paul, then Paul's suffering for the church is not different or in addition to Christ's suffering, but rather a visible manifestation of it. In the same way that we don't re-crucify Christ in the Eucharist, but in the sacrament, the sacrifice is made real and present. It's all interconnected. Because Christ, as Paul just said, is in the process of reconciling all things to Himself. He is present when His people suffer. He is present in the Eucharist. He is miraculously present in you and in me. In fact, it's this interconnectedness That allows Paul to see his suffering as part of Christ's suffering. It's this interconnectedness that is, in fact, our hope. What we hope is that what is true of Jesus Christ is true of us. If it's not, We're all in serious trouble. What we hope is that when God looks on us, what He sees is not us. Not our weakness, not our frailty, not our shortcomings. Our hope is that what He sees is His Son. What we hope is that the Father will do for us what He did for Jesus. Namely, raise Him from the dead, never to die again. That is our glorious hope. That is Christ in us. So that's what's true of Him becomes true of us. And so, what we proclaim is Him. We proclaim Him. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, for I decided to know nothing. Nothing. Nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And given all that Paul has said about Jesus in the preceding verses, and how He is 
the creator of all things and the sustainer of all things and how all things exist for him and how he is reconciling all things to himself through the cross, what else is there to proclaim other than Jesus Christ and him crucified? And this is finally at last where I wanted to land. I have nothing to tell you other than about Jesus. I have nothing to proclaim other than Him and His cross by which He is reconciling the world to Himself. And I do this, I teach and I preach and whatever else I can do in hope that one day, as Paul says at the end of this verse, I may present all of you before Him as mature disciples in Jesus Christ. This teleology, this goal has been on my mind a lot lately as we've been having these conversations about New building, renovations, purchasing a new facility, whatever. I said this at a meeting last Monday, and let me say it here publicly in case there is any confusion. When I stand before the judgment seat of Christ, he will not ask me how many members I had at my church. And he will not ask me about our average Sunday attendance. Nor will he ask me about our average annual giving. What he will ask me is if I am able to present all of you as mature disciples in him. So I don't care about that other nonsense. At all. That's the only thing that drives me. That question. How do I present all of you as mature disciples in Christ Jesus on the last great day? That's no small burden. Nor... Is it mine alone? Because we are a community. And we say that our vision is to see the world and especially the communities in which we live, work, and worship filled with disciples of Jesus Christ. Perhaps we should have said filled with mature disciples of Jesus Christ. But either way, we are all engaged in this project from the rector who holds the greatest responsibility on down. And so what we're going to keep doing at this church is we're going to keep proclaiming only him and his cross by which he is reconciling all things in heaven and on earth to himself.
Because I don't have anything else to say. I don't have anything else to teach. And with the start of this new school year, which our practical church calendar revolves around, our focus will be discipleship. Specifically, intergenerational discipleship. So that all of us, from the youngest to the oldest, can be involved in this project of presenting each other to Christ as mature disciples in Him. Because that's our vision. That's our vision for the whole world, right? Riffing off the Great Commandment. That's Great Commission, excuse me. That's our, our vision for the whole world. But it's especially our vision for our homes and for our places of work and for our church. It won't be easy. Discipleship can hurt. Paul says in conclusion, for this I toil. For this I toil. Struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works in me. Notice that language. I toil with his energy. It won't be easy. But it won't be us. It will be Him, the one whom we proclaim. His Spirit, working in concert with our prayers through everyone in this community, that we all might continue in faith, stable and steadfast until we are all mature disciples in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.